0: Now, Father, what we pray is so that this living Word will do its work in us. We pray, Lord, that we would not just hear with our ears, but that it would go deep into our souls. And we do pray, Lord, that your Word would bring about the fruit of lives that honor you, that look like you, that bring great glory to you. It's in your name we pray. The immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001, a wave of patriotism and unity swept across our country. I Many of you remember there were flags flying everywhere, all kinds of things going on like that, but one of the most interesting expressions of our unity in that time was that people in large gatherings began to spontaneously sing together, more than they had before may remember the very first baseball and football games after the terrorist attacks took place, and we're just kind of trying to get life back to normal. And those, when they sang the national anthem on those nights, it, the place just rung. It gave you chills just to listen to it and to hear it. In that same time, there were senators and representatives of both parties that stood on the steps of our Capitol, and they opened their mouths, and together, Democrats and Republicans, They sang, God Bless America. Wouldn't it be great if they could do that again? (laughs) They were reminded something unique was going on that would draw them together. Something about singing together through diverse people together. Something uniquely bonding about singing together with a crowd. You've done it. You've sung Happy Birthday at a birthday party. You've sung for He's a good Fellow at a retirement party. You've sung your school fight song. (laughs) Or if you've been at Fenway Park... At the eighth inning of any baseball game, you probably would have sung along the something happens when we're in a crowd we all sing together and you've had those moments those singing kind of moments but you know there's no place in our society that consistently where singing as a group is, is a part of public gathering than in a Christian worship service Christianity is a singing faith. It's from, you emerge from our roots in, in Judaism, and you compare it to other world religions, like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, they may have prayers that they chant, but there's nothing like the song that saturates the Judeo-Christian faith. Staying is our heritage. It's the way we tell our story. You go back and look, here's most of the people of Israel. They brought out captivity and God brings them through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get to the other side, and the first thing they do is they sting David, the shepherd king, writes all kinds of songs to express thanks or confession or say, God, what's going on? And we have many of those in our book of Psalms today that people would sing. Jesus and the disciples, as they had the Passover meal, they sung a hymn together before they left. And Paul and Silas, they're beaten and imprisoned for healing a demon possessed girl. And at midnight, it says they were singing hymns to the Lord. These are our ancestors in the faith. These are the streams that feed our river of our worship life together. So that we sing together is, is not a question. This morning we want to consider this. What is going on when we sing together? Uh, our thing we've looking at is better together, moving from, from me to we. And this series of past several weeks has been on worship is. Better together, and today as we close, we're going to talk about this idea that being inspired is better together. When we talk about inspired, we're talking about stirring our affections in a Godward way, and one of the key ways we do that is by singing together. Now we're going to explore this this morning by looking at this one little verse in Ephesians 5. So have your copy of God's Word go ahead and turn there to Ephesians chapter. Jake Smith is going to read our word for us today. And uh, and uh, it's very similar to our word from last week in Colossians. You're going to hear that. Both letters written by Paul from Christians, same time. Both have the same structure. Gospel in the first part of the book. Application of the gospel in the last part. Now, now, before Jake reads, I want you to hear what happens before this in Ephesians 4. He says, look, here's what I want you to do. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a disciple of Jesus. Put off the old, put on the new be an imitator of God, walk in love, be filled with the Spirit, right? And now when you stand on the reading of God's Word, I so want you to hear the very next thing Paul says after he said this. So let's hear God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is the Word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to kind of hear the context of that because I want you to see that this idea of worship, when we have it together, is integral to the life of a disciple. It's why we've included it in our disciples' pathway. We talk about we're going to worship, we're going to connect, serve, equip, and multiply. But the very first part of that is we are we're going to worship because we are worshipers disciples of Jesus live to make much of the supreme worth of God God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and we worship when we gather together and we also are worshipers when we when we scatter now now can this little verse about about this thing, there are some some final really crucial elements of our consideration of our worship life. Together. The first thing I want you to notice is this. The worship is better when we are inspired together, first of all, to recognize the core of worship. Look at the last little part of that verse there where he says, uh, What you sing and make melody together in your heart or with your heart. Now, those three little words are crucial. It's a to us that worship is not about anything external to us. It is about what happens not, it doesn't happen from the outside in. If we get the outside in right, then worship will take place. No. What he's saying is the worship happens from the inside out. It's about the heart. The heart, the source of all that we do, all that we say, all that we are, the heart that is the wellspring of life, Proverbs says. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything comes out of out of the heart. So worship is not from the outside in, but the inside out. So one day, Jesus has a conversation with a woman at, at a well. They remember the story. We don't know much about her, but we do know she was a Samaritan, which was the Jewish people. They would have looked at her as kind of a, a half-breed tribe. They would have hardly given them the time of day to look at. Jesus at the well asks for a drink, and he invites her into a conversation about her her soul. Now she didn't know, or hadn't recognized yet, that she was spiritually needy, that she was spiritually thirsty, that that Jesus was the living water that would satisfy her. Jesus wisely leads her to consider, in the name, what she had in fact been using to satisfy the need of her soul, and the things she had been using. Well, it was just men, a series of men, one after another after another. She's living with another guy. Now, now, when she named that, do you think she blushed? I think there was some guilt there, there was some shame there, and so in that moment, when there's guilt and shame, your mind spins. You're about anything. I, I got to get out of this. Got to get out of this. What can we talk about? What else can we talk about? Oh, let's have a theological discussion. And so she lands on, well, let's talk about worship. Because listen, you choose, and we Americans we say the best place to connect with God is in a different spot. So, what's the best place for us to make a connection with God? Now, Jesus, he just went the conversation where it was going, and he gently tells her, "Look, you're asking the wrong question. Worship is not about a place or any other externals like lighting." Or sound systems, or screens, or personalities, or song styles, or loudness, or softness, or instrumentals, or anything. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 4. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this is important because Jesus says must worship there's a must point here there's a non-negotiable here we're going to worship we must worship in spirit and truth what does that mean we it's already told to us about uh, the spirit part that God is spirit and he's not physical he doesn't have a, a body that limits him to time and space God the Holy Spirit any place any time with any person when we're together together we're two or more gathered, he's there in the midst of them by the Holy Spirit, but God also created us to know Him and to relate Him. So He put in us the, the human Spirit, the deepest core of who we are. And so there's this intersection that goes on between the Holy Spirit and, and a person and an individual spirit. So when we say we're going to worship in spirit, this is more than just getting bodies in a room in a building on a day at a time. He's never going to worship the spirit. It's more than saying there's certain emotions we're going to have, and therefore we worship in the spirit. We have some kind of tingle. no? He's saying like something much, much bigger is going on here. something bigger than what we can measure what we normally measure with our our five senses outwardly. something big is more when we gather to worship. Here's what's happening. The eternal God, by his holy Spirit, is present here. We are in Second not We Jesus, you are here. He is here, and He's moving and working to the deepest, most hidden parts of every single soul. And what the Holy Spirit does is, it always draws us to Jesus to see Him for who He believes. So we say, we're going to worship in here. We we open ourselves. We pray. We expect. We invite God, the Holy Spirit. To do something among us that we can't measure or see or understand, what is mysterious, what is supernatural. We invite Him to intersect our plans, to blow up our worship orders, to show up and do what He wants to do in us because there's something more at play when we're gathered for worship than just showing up. Now, if we just left it there, it could lead to some weird stuff. So Jesus bows with that, worship in spirit and Truth, the truth is the substance or the measure of what's real. So Jesus prayed, "Father, Your word is truth." God speaks, God reveals Himself, and we have it recorded and preserved for us in the Bible. God's word, what we sang about just a moment ago. God's word, but Jesus also said that He was the Word made flesh. And Jesus claimed, "I am the truth." So truth is a person. So all that is written points to a person, points to Jesus, points to who he is. So our worship is built on the the word. We look at it in what we preach and what we sing and what we read focus our minds and our souls on the gospel, the life, death, resurrection, reign of Jesus. So, So what he says is worship is happening when the Holy Spirit takes that truth punch it deep to the soul of a heart in some way that we can begin to describe and we see and make much of who Jesus is. We worship in spirit and in truth. So understand what he's saying. Worship is not the out the core worship, not the outer things, not from the outside in. Don't work it up that way, but it happens from the inside out as we encounter God in the deepest parts of who we are. In the late 1990s, a lot of global worship was being shaped by a few key congregations, and one of them was a congregation in Watford, England, called Soul Survivor. Uh, a number of worship leaders. One of them was a guy named Matt Redmond. and so great things were happening in that congregation in their worship life. They were sharing with the world, but but then their worship gatherings began to sense that they were dry and dull. So their pastor Mike who led them to come I in one Sunday and they, they didn't use any sound system. They didn't use any screens. Oh well, matter of fact they didn't use any singers either. Or any band or any instruments of any kind. Matter of fact they moved the entire gathering to another room where all they had was their voices and their Bibles and their hearts. They said we stripped away everything associated with style, or preference, or performance. And when he gathered that, that day, Pastor Mike expressed how concerned he was that they had become consumers of worship experiences. He's coming and taking in, watching, and he asked this question: When you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? It's a great question. And was silence in the room for a moment. And then gradually, someone began to pray over here. Someone sang a song over here. And they we were all like that for several months—not just one Sunday. For several months. Later on, that reverend looked back at that time, and here's what he said. He said, "We came to see afresh that worship was nothing less than the all-consuming response to the all-deserving revelation of God." After a while, the worship band and the system reappeared, but now it was different. The songs of our hearts had caught up with the songs of our lips. Remember Jesus? One time he said, "Oh, you're saying the right things with your lips, but your hearts are far from me." He says we came to point in our worship where we had just had just had the outward kind of form of worship, but now we found that our hearts are catching what we've been doing outwardly. So the whole new season of worship began for their they came the And Out of that, Matt wrote a song. Here's how he describe what had happened in this song. When the music fades, all is stripped away and i simply come. Longing just to bring something that's of work that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. And he said, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I got a question. Is that a confession we might need to make? That we're sorry for the thing we have made this into, when in reality, it's all about Jesus? Where's your heart of worship? Where's the core are you looking for it to happen from the outside in, or is it bubbling from the inside out? The core of worship is where it starts. So, so our words look better together when we're inspired to recognize the core of our worship, but also the content of our worship. Now last week, we, we talked about these, these vehicles that God uses to engage our souls in worship. So there were three of them. There was proclamation. There was praise. And there was prayer. The last time we talked about the proclamation side, about how God's word works in our gatherings. Today we're focusing on on praise, specifically as we sing that out uh, together. Now remember, uh, these are not three separate things. You know, we don't say, "Oh, we're going to listen to something proclaimed, and then we're going to worship a while." No, we're worshiping while we're hearing the word proclaimed. We're worshiping while we're singing and while we're praying, and, and those interconnect with one another. Now, Paul indicates here in Ephesians 5, verse 19, that there are a variety of useful expressions in that phrase that a, a church may use in their gatherings. Even in the earliest days of the church, there were three varieties. There were psalms, there were hymns, there were spiritual psalms. Now, the, the psalms are maybe had some of the ancient tunes. You can look at your in the Bible and read through the psalms. You'll find many times at the top of the psalm, before you get to the words, it'll kind of give you the name of the tune. They would have known what that tune was. They would have sung that out in that way. Then there were hymns. Hymns are, are songs that are not explicitly Scripture, but they are written to express the truths of the gospel. Now, we think that a very familiar passage to us in, in Philippians 2 was, in fact, a hymn that the church would have sung. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not kind of count a with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of the men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's read this together. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they would have sung that together. Not just spoken it, they would have sung it. So there were songs, there were hymns, there were spiritual songs. I'm not exactly sure what those were. But maybe they were songs of testimony and personal experience in some way. But to see this from the beginning... There was diversity of style and content in the church's musical worship, all true communicating the gospel. So it wasn't a matter of this is right or wrong, this is better, this is worse, this is more spiritual, this is less spiritual, it's just different. As long as it was, as it was true to you, the word and the gospel of Jesus. Now you can trace these exact same three large categories across centuries of church history. They're not Thousand equal thirds. This kind of this dynamic mix that's always kind of changing depending on the time and the cultural moment. So you go back and look, and you find the earliest centuries of the church were defined by chant. By Voices only, usually done just by the priests, and often just in Latin. So the people were just mostly listening because they didn't understand or couldn't speak Latin. Well, then came the Reformation, the 16th and 1700s. And the whole Reformation. Was built on taking the church back from just the priestly people and giving it to the the people, and, and so there's simply giving the gospel back to the the people, and so worship moved from from this ritual to engagement. So what they were doing was they were translating now the Bible into the languages of the people, wasn't Latin everywhere, and they began to do the same with hymns. So in France, they came up with, with metrical psalms, took the psalms, and in Brits, they would kind of make them poetic and kind of keep the same idea. In Germany, there was a guy named Martin Luther who wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. In England, Isaac Watts wrote things like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or God, our help in ages he past. In that same line came psalms like Holy, 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 or, or Amazing Grace. Those have, have stood the test of, of time but built death. In the early 1800s and late 1800s, early 1900s, under the influence of evangelists like Dale Moody and others, another kind of song entered into the church's worship life. They were, they were called gospel songs, and uh, some considered them very scandalous because they used kind of a syncopated rhythm that sounded a lot like the popular songs of the day, and the words were far more personal, testimonial. So people like Sandy Crosby and BB McKinney and others wrote things like "The Lily of the Valley" or "Blessed Assurance" or "Have Faith in God" or wherever He believes I go. The the Cross leaning on the everlasting arms. And those hymns and spiritual songs you see continue to be written and drawn from all kinds of sources. The soloist for the Billy Graham Crusades, George Beverly Shea, heard a hymn that was sung in churches in Sweden. Had been there for years, and he <laughs> he took that, he translated. Began to sing it into the end of Billy Graham Crusades, and very quickly it made its way into churches. We know it today as "How Great Thou Art." It was brand new in the 1940s and 1950s; nobody had ever heard that before. Then, in the late 60s and early 70s, the spirit began to stir a new thing among young people on college campuses in the Jesus movement. Many of those young people to Christ through the church, and they began to write music to express their newfound uh, faith in Christ. These would tend to be spiritual songs. They were they were brief, passionate choruses, often focusing on a personal testimony. And for the first time, we begin to see things like drums and guitars showing up actually in worship services on Sunday morning. Not long after that. A music teacher in Indiana named Bill Gaither served in choir musicals. from choir musicals to Sunday morning pretty fast. And we think there's something about that name. It wasn't always there. In the 70s and, and the 80s, the churches began to see blended worship, mixing these gospel songs and traditional hymns and choruses. And, but as the world got, got smaller through globalization, another wave began. Songs from kind of around the world. And so an Australian named Darlene Check wrote a song called Shout the Lord. And by the early parts of this century, in the 2000s, the most sung songs in churches across the globe were written by any guy from Texas named Chris Tomlin. Wrote songs like How Great is Our God. And about a decade ago, a new movement of contemporary hymn writing arose. Songs with, with doctrinal depth and serious passion. Of so Keith and Christian Getty wrote in Christ Alone, or there's reworking of hymns with new chorus, like we sang this morning with Come Now Found. With the rise of the internet, digital technology, now the number style and source of songs of the church has exploded. Many churches are developing their, their own songs. And what I want you to see is this this constant interplay of songs and hymns of spiritual songs. Has been in the church from the very beginning, has continued for generations. Vastly different styles reflecting cultural shifts and sensibilities. And often, when a new one was introduced, there was a bit of a tension point before it became a part of the reality of the church as a whole. And understand, we just talked about the church in the West. We haven't talked about the church in Africa or Asia or what's going on there. But all of these things, valid the ways of Jesus' people to express thanks and lament, confession, trust, faith. In singing together, so, so our worship is better together when we are inspired to recognize the core worship comes from our heart, and there's a content to it driven always by the gospel with songs and spiritual songs. But we also finally want to recognize the community of worship. At the very beginning of Ephesians 5:19, he says, "You're addressing or speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs." So, so something has happened to us relationally when we sing together. We're communicating. What are we communicating when we're singing? We're communicating, and declaring the character and the acts of God. He's holy, generous, kind, faithful, loving, compassionate. We're affirming that Jesus is a worthy King, worthy of all our praise. We're we're delighting in the fullness of the gospel. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's all those things. And this has positively nothing to do with the quality of the voices that we're sharing. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's okay. It's really fine. Say however it works for you is okay. It's like when you're reading Old Testament names and you have no clue how to pronounce it. You just say it with great confidence. And it sounds okay when you do that, right? You know the same thing with singing. I was at a conference last week, the guy was next to me, oh my goodness, I've never heard anybody that may have been further away from the key we were singing than he was, but he was so confident and so joyful. And this thing right along with it, so we're singing, when we're speaking to one another, this implies that somebody is listening, which means that the act of singing in worship cannot just be about my personal preference or my Enjoyment. My singing is for you, your singing is for me. Now, as there are a diversity of styles of worship, there are also a diversity of worship preferences. And everybody here has a worship heart preference in terms of musical style. You have a preference of style and content that's most natural for you, that's most comfortable for you, that helps you uh, sense God, express your heart to Him. The same kind of thing when we speak our, our our regular languages. I was just in Southern Europe a few weeks ago, and some of our brothers there. We come to the time of, of blessing the meal or praying over our sessions together, and they wouldn't struggle to express their prayers in English. No, they they would pray in Parsi or Arabic or French because that was their heart language. That was the easiest way for them to express their love and delight for God in Christ in their heart language. Now we all have a worship heart language. Have you ever thought about where your heart language come from? Why you why you love the songs that you love? Uh, a couple of sources I would suggest. One is your the tradition you grew up in. If you grew up in a Christian tradition, you'll feel most at home with that. If you grew up in a more liturgical kind of church, you're probably gonna feel more at home with, with those those hymns from the Reformation, those solid old hymns that have been around for centuries. If you grew up in the South and in Baptist or Methodist churches, you'll more more familiar, more it feels more right to you for those revivalistic kind of kind of songs, those those gospel songs, the music that was done. That's one way. the other way this may come from me is the music that was most dominant when you came to faith in Christ, or when you had significant movement or period of growth in your own walk with the Lord. So, so this preference emerges. Now, here's the tension. The tension comes when I gather with a whole bunch of people where there's hundreds of worship preferences in here. Right? And when I worship with other dialects, I want to get to deal. Worship only really happens when we speak in my preferred style or my preferred kind of kind of way of, of worshiping. Gary uh, Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, and he talks about how in marriages and families, there there are ways that people prefer uh, and, and, and experience an expression of love from one person to another. So there's Gifts, or affirming words, or physical touch, or quality time. And, you know, the biggest problem is that a husband say I like need would speak the language I'm most familiar with that I like, and I would try to speak that to Paula. But but if Paula, that's not her love language, she doesn't feel that I'm expressing love to her in that way. So in the same way, if I'm speaking German and she only speaks French, I've got to figure out some way to speak what's going on. Now, now hang hang with me here. Listen. Is it possible? It's possible that some of our struggles with worship, some of our anxieties, some of our frustration is because we want it to always be in our preferred dialect, our preferred heart language. Oh, we'll tolerate the other stuff, but we'll really fully participate in it. I think it's possible. But listen, we're a family, we're diverse. Multi-generational, and on any given Sunday morning, there are literally hundreds of worship heart languages and dialects in the room at the same time. And we're a family, which means we're Jesus people. And here's what Jesus said: He said, "Love your neighbor as yourself." Then I said, "Treat others the way you want to be treated." And Paul, when he we recorded about him, for that we read right a moment ago. Right before that, here's what he said in Philippians 2. He said, let, let each of you, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The best thing for others. So we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're worshiping together. What's the best thing for all your brothers and sisters in this place? The best thing is to encounter Jesus see Him, to hear Him, to know Him, to delight Him, to follow Him. So if I want to help my brothers and sisters in Christ, one way I can do that is by enthusiastically speaking their heart language when we are worshiping together. Let me show you how this works. Maybe you would say, look, I really prefer the old hymns. It's what I grew up on. It's what's easiest for me to sing. I don't get the newer stuff. I really prefer that. But if this song, with that driving beat and that repeated chorus for the fifth time, if that song will help that young mother across the room to encourage Jesus, I mean, I'll i sing with everything I got. Or maybe you would say, oh, look, when we go do the hymn thing, the words seem so old and it feels so out of touch. It's kind of a dull... But there's a widow who sits on my row, and I've seen the tears go down her face when she sings. And if it's going to help her worship, I will sing that hymn with all I've got. That's what it means for us to be a family together. Because look, with that attitude, we move from being consumers to being servants, from demographic slices to one body worshiping together. Now you want to hear what that's like when that happens? Hang with me for a second. This the audience, which is the audience participation part of our message this morning. All right? All right. On the count of three, I want you good and strong to say your first and last name out loud, right? One, two, three. Now on the count of three. Would you simply say the name Jesus? One, two, three. When we worship Him, the Spirit flows and moves among us. He will point us to Jesus. Jesus says, If I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, and we help each other live as faithful disciples who are worshipers. Listen to me. Listen to me. Our worship life is never a cause or division in the body. It's an opportunity to humbly serve, brothers and sisters, and to unify ourselves. Because listen, we really are better together when we worship together. We gather each Lord's day over the last few weeks is when we seen, We gather together. We stir one another up to love and good deeds. We encourage one another We put courage, put heart in each other for living in the mess of the world. We exhort one another to live faithful to the gospel. We instruct one another to live by the truth of God's word. We inspire one another to delight in Jesus above all things. Now listen, we have a vision. We have family of disciples who make disciples. We have a mission. We want to lead more people to anchor their life and hope in Jesus. But all of that flows out of and into worship. Every bit of what we do as a faith family flows out of worship and into worship, because worship is the fuel for our mission. It is our delight in Jesus, from our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, that fuels everything else that we do. You do understand, right? That all of our worship gatherings now are just a rehearsal for eternity. Because coming day, we will all of us. Stand face to face before Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives. We will stand before Jesus, the King who reigns forever, and we will be stunned by his glory and by his beauty and his grace. And we will kneel or we'll dance or we'll shout or we'll sing and he'll say, Worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and God. You're worthy to receive honor and strength and wisdom and might and glory and Power and blessing will shout, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let the redeemed, those redeemed by his blood, rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For we are now, brothers and sisters, and ever shall be worshipers of Jesus. This is who we are, this is how we live, not just for an hour on Sunday morning. But for all of our life now and for all of eternity, together we worship Jesus. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning, and for you, you have never bowed the knee to Jesus as King. And in this moment, it would be a great time to come and kneel here and recognize. You definitely need a Savior who has died for you. Maybe you're here this morning, and your heart of worship has grown so dull, or it's become all about a whole bunch of external things. And if all this right and that's right and this right and that's right, then I can worship. Maybe today would be a good time to come here and heal and pray and say, "Oh Jesus, do a thing in my heart." i worship the inside out and delight in you with my faith. So, Lord, help us in these moments as we worship and delight and remind ourselves that we're stunned by this grace for all of our life and for eternity. Let us respond to your promises to pray and worship you. to surrender our lives in Jesus' name We pray. Amen.